This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode of Jews You Should Know. And this is our first episode actually post-October 7th. It's been really, really hard thinking about what episodes I would bring. We did, of course, publish my conversation with my uncle, Avramo Kivalevich, about the situation on college campuses. But in terms of interviews of others, it's been difficult to think about who we could bring on and what kind of content we could offer that would be meaningful during this time. And amazingly enough, there was an interview that I had in the pipeline, so to speak, someone named Sharon Koifman from an organization called Israel Activists. And we had done this quite a while ago and never published it yet. And I was just waiting for the right time. And then, of course, October 7th hit. And I re-listened to the episode just to make sure it still was appropriate under our current circumstances. And it absolutely is. Uh, Believe it or not, I actually brought in Sharon to my campus, to University of Maryland, to speak to students, where he had a real wonderful impact. And I'm pleased as well to bring his voice to our Jews You Should Know audience. And he's also a really wonderful and interesting business owner and just a passionate Jewish representative, a voice we all need to hear during this trying time. Meanwhile, a reminder is always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews, you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you may be listening, and let others know about this podcast. And now to our conversation with Israel Activist Founder, Director, Sharon Koifman. We are here with Sharon Koifman from Israel Activist, and he's coming to us from Montreal, or Montreal, I believe, and uh, we'll hear about how we got there and what Israel Activist is and all of that. How are you, Sharon? I am doing fantastic. I feel revived after the Rosh Hashanah. I'm, I'm excited for this new year. Yeah, it's wonderful. And for those uh, listening at some later date, which uh, we won't be releasing this probably for a little while, we are recording <laughs> on Som Gedalia, which is the fast day that immediately follows Rosh Hashanah every year. So it's uh, the morning of Som Gedalia. Nobody's too hungry quite yet. I myself woke up at five o'clock to have a, uh, a dr- couple of uh, some drinks and, uh, and some, some food. So I'm actually doing great, but it's only nine <laughs> o'clock in the morning. But anyway, Sharon, tell us a little bit about where you are from originally. Are you from Montreal or where, what's your original background? No, so I'm originally from Kirat Bialik, Haifa, but I, I left, um, I left very early in my life when I was 10 years old and moved to Montreal. Um, as much in, as I'm in love with the homeland, I am pretty much Canadianized by now, whether I admit it or not. So or I have that little hybrid. I still have the little Israeli chutzpah with, for the politeness of a Canadian. So it makes a better hybrid. But uh, I've been here for about 35 years. Wow. Unbelievable. Now, what precipitated your parents' move? Like, had they been in Israel for a long time? What was the... Uh... What was the background of their, you know, their personal uh, sojourns? I think I, I think it was uh, simply opportunity, life choices. Um, we were part of the original Russian immigrants, um, and my my dad just had 
a good opportunity in Canada. My mom was not happy about it because my mom became hardcore Zionist like instantaneously, right? So, so she was, it was to the detriment of my mom, but in general, um, it was, uh, a, a, the move was just an opportunity related and I moved to Canada and got used to it. Well, so your parents had come from Russia, uh, before, before you were born. So uh, up to up to a year ago, I would say Russia. Now we say Ukraine. Ukraine right? Of course, this of is course. a very important technicality, <laughs> right? Back in the pre-war, former USSR was Russian-speaking Jews, and very quickly I discovered that uh, that the majority of Russian Jews are actually Ukrainian. But we were very much Ukrainian. We were we came from Chernivtsi, a really Jewish town on the border of Romania and Ukraine, and Technically, I'm not even a Ukrainian. I'm Romanian because all my grandparents are from Romania, and some of them, the border even moved on. Yeah. So, how how long before you were born did your parents move to Israel? So exactly six years ago, because my brother was born in Ukraine, and the move when he was two weeks old. That's how I know it uh, pretty quickly. Fantastic. So you lived in Israel ten years. Got your Hebrew. Uh credentials <laughs> and yes. then uh moved to canada <laughs> that, that's you got your your accent which is impeccable still and uh moved to montreal so uh, what were you involved with in montreal what was your family doing over there what was the jewish community like you know during the i guess the 80s the 90s so when you move as uh as a former ussr israeli you know the your priority is is not the Jewish aspect. I to to be to be honest, it it's more of a survival story, like any any other immigration story. And you want to, and here you need to learn French and English at the same time, which is incredibly irritating. Com- consider that I'm slightly dyslexic, so it, it was for me. It was a, a bigger. The, the focus was not about the Jewish community when I came in. Technically, I I try. Like many, many Israelis that try to integrate super quickly, I didn't even call myself Israeli. I called myself Russian, which I'm so embarrassed to, to look back that, that I actually, because I'm I'm pretty hardcore Israeli. There's no question about it. I'm, I'm loud. I'm, I'm, I'm outspoken. I, there, there is nothing remotely not Israeli about me, but I remember coming to one of those integration classes and everybody was Arabs. And some of them were pretty pissed off at Israeli Jews. And I did not know what, and when I was in grade five, I didn't know what, how to deal with it. I just wanted friends. I didn't want to, I didn't want to pick fights. I was perfectly actually happy to make friends with Arabs. But uh, the moment that they heard I'm Israeli, it became controversy. And after that, I moved to, to Jewish school. So, or Jewish school after that, 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 that controversy didn't come back for a long time but for i just wanted to make friends and i felt that it was easier to make friends as a russian back then than as a jew because when you would say you're russian oh cool you're so tough the people at least until the war people had a really cool stigma where it comes to russians and uh, so but but saying that once i got to appreciate and understand the community this Montreal community, I find it to be one of the most fabulous Jewish communities in the world. I probably, probably the best outside Israel. The connection, the the little 
shtetl, the little kibbutz feeling that we have in Montreal is like none other. We are, are actually our, our two, we have about five Jewish ghettos here for if we can, if we use that, but two of them are the most concentrated Jewish towns in the world. Wow. Kotzenluk and Hampstead. Hampstead is about 76% Jews. You don't see that anywhere. And I've learned throughout the years that some of the biggest donors for uh, biggest donors for Israel with some of the biggest loyalty and connection to Israel comes from this town, uh, this city per capital. So it is a very, very special community. And I really love living here. Incredible. How did your parents choose Montreal? Was just a simply a job opportunity? Job opportunity. Nothing yeah. more. They for my dad, the idea of moving to Canada is is a big deal, right? And actually, Montreal would have probably not if we look back as much as I love the city so much, it wouldn't probably wouldn't be his first choice if we would know better right now. Or maybe it was. He, you know, he kept saying keeps on telling me how much he loves it here. So I believe him. <laughs> Yeah, Montreal is interesting, as you mentioned, because you have the French uh, aspect, and it's kind of this this really sort of uh, unique cultural environment. Um, what, it sounds like that was a little bit difficult to integrate into because of the you know, the different uh, strands and different languages and so forth that you needed to uh, adapt. Yeah, I'm I'm not I'm I'm not a master of I I speak four languages and all of them bad. And uh, all of them have an accent. It's very funny in every uh, in every language. But there's something really beautiful about bilingualism. There's also this a vibrant Sephardic culture here that you don't see in most North American. Pl- you, you, there's plenty of Sephardics and Moroccans everywhere, but here they really have this amazing integration. So there's that beauty right to the country that that you really have this beautiful hybrid between ashkenazi and sephardic uh, cultures kind of coming together that you can't see in most places because the french of the uh, french of the english so as much as it was tough tough as as a kid to learn two languages at the same time at 10 years old it's beautiful and i love it and you said that your family uh or at least that you it sounded like we're not hyper focused on the uh, religious or even Jewish communal aspect of life as you moved to Canada because there was, there was just so much else that you were adjusting to and you know learning the languages, learning the culture, learning and making friends, you know knowing where the where the grocery store is, where the dry cleaners is. It's a surviving uh, story. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, you call it the American story, but it's a Canadian story. It's kind of the same concept, but yes, it was the the Judaism was not exactly. Uh, integral focus back then. So, where did Judaism come into your life or your family's life? What role did it play at that time? Were your, was your family at all uh, religious? Did they have any Jewish uh, proclivities? Obviously, they had the Israeli feeling, um, but did, did they observe any you know ritual law or anything of that nature? So, we absorbed proud Jews, proud Zionists. There was never controversy on that aspect, but not. The first introduction that I had to Shabbat, the real Shabbat, was that my brother married a traditional woman, right? And she kind of, she kind of brought Shabbat. He met, he started becoming friends with Lubavitchers. The, the Lubavitchers is a is is a big entrance story to many many people. And I 
I honestly, I've originally met Lubavitchers, enjoyed drinking with them and having conversation with the entrance. And but at the same time in university, and I guess we'll get to that later. I got became such an aggressive activist for Israel, and and for me, the real when I became Balchuva, if you can call it that, I'm kind of a hybrid modern Orthodox. Um, is when I married my beautiful wife and i married a modern orthodox uh woman super cool super amazing and uh she kind of integrated me um to to the to the religion to to, to being shomer, shomer shabbos and going to shul every saturday and having a strictly kosher house um but i felt that the five ten years before that being an activist and Hanging out with Lubavitchers kind of prepared me uh, for that for that reality, which is where I am at this moment. Wonderful. So now, tell me about where were you going early on? Uh, again, you're this Israeli with the Ukrainian, you know, Soviet former Soviet Union background. You're in Montreal. You're kind of this, you know, you're kind of like a little UN in your own uh, one person. And uh, <laughs> you know, did you have you know what was what was your aspirations? Uh, what were your early desires? Did you want to go into the business? Did you want to follow your father's, uh, into your father's profession? What was the goals as a young man? So business has always, always been the only option. And my dad, and I mean it in a positive way, not in a negative way, but it, it literally brainwashed us that, that you come in, you start your own business, you don't work for the man, you build something. For, of course, you finish school, right, which is to his detriment. Both me and my brother did not officially finish school and just went to business too early. All his fault. Right? I won't tell and anyone other than our uh, podcast listeners. That's it. <laughs> it's our little but, secret. It's Look, my brother runs a $50 million company, and, and I don't think my dad even thinks about this. But back then, it was controversial for five minutes, right? Uh, so... So it was, but my dad was all about, you gotta open a business. He, he opened himself, uh, an, an engineering company, pretty much build everything from home. So he was a brilliant engineer. He was able to draft an entire machine himself, give it to the machine shop and send it to the client. And wow. it is, is quite, quite a, a, a unique brain, but it was actually my inspiration for my business of running remote companies uh, throughout my life and the idea of sitting in front of a computer and building a 40 employee teams and started with my dad just doing what doing what an entire engineering firm should do in in at, at his house at his comfort of his own home incredible sounds like a brilliant man yes definitely is so what business did you start right away? So I, I'm on my third company. Uh, my first company was a web hosting company. So inspired by my dad, running technology companies was the most appealing thing. So before I was an activist, I was a complete techie. I was always kind of an activist related to human rights and philosophy. It was, it was not all for me all about Israel when I started before I got to university pretty much, but business was absolutely my first passion and being an inventor was my first passion. 
and I ran a web hosting company with um, the servers were in in Texas and eventually in New Jersey, and the entire team was in India. And I have learned so much about managing people internationally, remote people. And after I sold that company, I had a little consulting in between. I started what it is today, a remote recruitment agency. So this was the first remote recruitment agency in the world. It is the idea of not recruiting from local region, just going to the world, taking advantage of this massive wealth talent that the world has to offer, and finding exceptional people. I was kind of inspired by my first company, which was web hosting, and I, I had a shop in India, so I did outsourcing. And I realized that the idea, if you're a real estate company and you need web design, outsourcing is a fantastic idea. But when you're a technology company, and you're outsourcing to some shop somewhere in the offshore world, you're kind of losing your soul. You're kind of losing your core. So that's why I decided to run a company that really, really specializes in just finding the people and letting them sit there. That was way before COVID. That was 15, 20 years ago already. But I pioneered the idea of remote people being able to work better than what you have in the office. Until today, we find exceptional remote people. What are some of the key ingredients to finding great people? Because there's so, so many people. It's such a big world, you know, and it's uh, people, you know, there's always language barriers and maybe cultural barriers, um, which I guess you're uniquely qualified to address. But you know, how do you find outstanding talent? And then how do you keep them, you know, at a rate that's so competitive versus what people would have to pay, you know, locally? So first of all, again, I have an advantage. The the market, especially I'm in the tech industry and the market of local developers, and you have to understand that developers in general, the combination is unlimited. The the, the platform, the class, the, the 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 programming language, the database, finding the perfect person and then finding a culture fit is so difficult in the local region. So I personally feel I have an advantage. Yes, there's absolute. With this massive pool of talent, there's also massive pool of talent of absolutely awful people. First of all, you again, 20 years by now, I'm a bestseller writer for managing remote people, and I, I speak and I, I, I give consulting and relate to remote people. And, and one, of, one of the key ingredients is to actually treat your team to empower your team and make them feel like they're part of this beautiful thing that you've done. And that means being intimate with them, treat them not as some offshore or outsource number, but really as people. And that brings me some of the most incredible um, recruiters from all over the world. People want to work for my company because we actually know how to treat them amazing and not force them to get uh, to uproot them. I mean, Google is famous Google and Facebook are famous for company culture, but they uproot people and then force them to the office. And a lot of those techies, they just want to be at home, still treat with respect, still be entertained, still have a culture fit. And this is what we do. So we get some of the best recruiters out there. And again, because the world, the cost of living is much lower, we have major cost advantage over our employees and over the employees that we provide people. Um, but one of our one of our tricks, among many other, because then we're going to spend. I, I spent. I get interviewed about this all the time, and it's an, an hour interview. How I get? How do I get people? But one of our biggest tricks is to really get to know our clients' companies. 
understand their culture, understand what makes them tick, and then find companies across the world that are similar and solicit their senior people. And this is how we find people like no others. It means no, you can't have outsourcing people. You can't have freelancers. You want people in a real job that are career-driven, that are focused. And this is how you get amazing, amazing remote people. So you're not dealing in the world of like Elance and Fiverr and that kind of stuff. They are my competitors, but they're also at the same time, the opposite of what we do. They are a passive solution of people that are desperate that are outbidding each other. But the truth is that the best people are busy and have a job. So I'm one of the only people in the world in this offshore category, which competes with Upwork. Upwork, by the way, but Elance and Odesk, and they kind of merged, right? But in that world, but I'm one of the only people actually headhunt people. And this gives a completely different level of results, different level of people that integrate part of your company culture. They're all fluent in English. So it is, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different experience. And what's interesting is that though, at the same time, you're also, you know, you're not looking just for one-off positions. You're, you're trying to actually bring people into a company as full-time employees, which is very different than mm-hmm. you know, somebody just doing a quick website or a quick project for somebody. In my book, I call them the non-committals, the freelancers, the outsourcers, the consultants, the contractors. This is the reason why the offshore industry has got such bad stigma, because we keep on hiring those people that are not interested to integrate as part of your company, a company culture, part of your process, part of the beautiful thing that you built. And this is where headhunters change everything, right? We are about people that want a job. They are not thinking about the next uh, opportunity. They really want, but the idea of having a real remote job appeals to them. And we find some of the best techs in the world like that. But I'm sure you would, I imagine you would agree that there is a role for those one-off kind of projects. Right? If I just need a website done, if I just need in a podcast, I just need uh, someone to make a graphics for my podcast, something like this. I don't need a full-time employee. I need a quick solution. So, The rule of thumb for me is if you need a solution that you can find locally, go ahead and find them internationally, right? If you need somebody, you need an employee. If you need somebody that works about uh, on your core um, skills. So outsourcing has a huge, huge uh, um, place in the world. You're a real estate company. You want a web design. Yes. Absolutely. Don't start. But if you're a tech company and you're a development company and you start outsourcing to another shop that doesn't, that with, with a manager that takes care of multiple companies that doesn't understand your processes, it is, it is a business sin, in my opinion. And there's no reason for it. Back 20 years ago when I started, I was the only solution, alternative solution for it. Right. But now the idea of just hiring somebody full time remote is is already becoming acceptable uh, acceptable concept and in my opinion it's the only way you should do it if you really are if this person becomes part of your core core skills and core requirements fascinating okay like you said we could do an entire hour podcast just on this um, <laughs> yes which you know i'll be honest going into this uh, conversation i didn't know you have this whole other you know for-profit side which is fascinating. i have I'm a bestseller writer. I'm a thought leader in the remote world. This gives me the juice to run Israel activists at the end of the day and uh, much of the experience. But yes, 
It's not, uh, it's a completely different domain side of me. Okay. I love it. And hopefully we can link to some of that information in our show notes as well, because it's, it's so interesting, at least to me. Um, but let's turn to Israel a little bit. When did, you know, obviously you're, again, you grew up in Israel, you were born there, but most of your, you know, life and your formation as a, as a person was not in Israel. So at what point did you begin feeling really connected and feeling like you had a role to play in the Israel diaspora story? So, so the funny thing is that I was never pl- planning to go into the Israel business. That's not where my, my mind was going. I had two passions. Um, I actually multiple passions. I also I, I'm, I play blues in a, ba- a band for a long time and I love music, but that's that was a hobby. But another passionate hobby of mine was human rights. I really loved, even from young age, I would love to analyze the way people think and how to, I was passionate about critical thinking. I read a lot of stuff from young age, how to create an independent thought process. I dabbled in the economist a little bit where it comes to human rights and international politics and, and, and realizing that the world is pretty, pretty bad. Right. And, and there's, uh, and there's a lot of problems out there. And I, I was passionate about environment. I was the progressive, the, the progressive lefty kind of guy who Israel was not on my radar. And then I made it to Concordia and Concordia being one of the original source of anti-Zionist. Before it spread all over, there was two universities in North America that were really starting the damage was Concordia and Berkeley. Berkeley, yeah. <laughs> yes. The Concordia Montreal was a huge thing. Um, Bibi Netanyahu came there. There was massive riots. There was this massive grassroots movement of anti-Zionism. I didn't even know that this was a complete shocker for me. And it came like, <laughs> right? And I was like, Okay, I always wanted to do some changes in the world. I always wanted, let's uh, tackle this. <laughs> Clearly, my people are really getting bombarded, and nobody's really doing something about this. So I started a slate to get elected for the student union. We against the most aggressive anti-Semitic, anti-Zionist. Um, they were using the university money for projects against israel that was 20 years ago before it's happening everywhere it was it was pretty insane it's like okay let's start a slate i was the vp of communication back then we got elected um and got kicked out uh three weeks later because uh, we didn't understand the technicalities you can't just vote the union you need to vote the board and uh, th- this was my introduction into politics one-on-one and then i became the vp of Hillel again i that was kind of thrown at me and and but i was already the most something i became the most outspoken guy in the university and and suddenly bibi where uh, Hillel invited bibi while i was vp of Hillel back then and it couldn't come in because there was riots the, the three four thousand breaking glasses like the stuff from the movies and i and i say and i said holy moly but but i do have to i do have to take it a step back i mean originally 
when I just start seeing all this, this hate, I was this traditional lefty progressive, right? And I was slowly trying, slowly drinking the Kool Aid of of uh, of the bad guys, right? I was uh, I call them the anti-Israel marketing machine right now, but back back then the suffering and the the demonstration of the Palestinians it like resonated with me. I felt. I, I felt until today I feel very concerned about them, but in a completely different interpretation. But I thank God that I can't that I dabbled in the economist a little bit and I cared about critical thinking a little bit. And I'm like sitting there, it's like, where's the other human rights discussions? What's okay, okay, all right, Palestinians, you're suffering. Tell me more. Uh, no problem. I'm all years, but why are we not talking about Sudan? And why are we not talking about Somalia and and China? And then I, and then I then I needed to then I went to my, to the books and I said, "Whoa, this is this is propaganda 101." Right? But 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 let me tell you. I was and once once I once I stop being uh, uh, a crazy believer of anything that, that people say, I became the loudmouth of the university, and that started an entire career, an unpaid career as an activist. <laughs> so until this point, how educated were you about the Israel-Israel-Palestinian conflict, all of that? I mean, again, your family was very Zionist, as you mentioned, and you had lived in Israel. So did you have much education? Did your parents talk about it a lot in the home? Like what was your what was your awareness level of the issues? So quite frankly, my education was nothing. And one of the raison d'etre, one of the my biggest flame, why I've been stuck being an activist for for uh for two decades after that, is that nobody taught me. And I was the loudmouth in the university back then. I was, you know, there was a documentary and I was all over it. And I was the guy. And quite frankly, nobody came to me and said, this is how you do it. I had no idea. I knew that based on my small research, that what this pro, not pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel advocates were, were saying no longer made sense. So, so I started fighting for my people, but I had no idea how to do it. But the problem is nobody else did either. Not there was few active students with me, and some of them even came from Asbara Fellowship, and they had no idea. And this is my source of frustration. Twenty through Canadian Jewish Congress, through Bnei Brith, all those organizations that I was deeply involved with, people did not know how to advocate for israel so it's not just me i did not know and nobody else did in my opinion at least how did you begin to discover i guess your own unique methodology for doing that um well probably one of my biggest source of success in this is that i liked it <laughs> right I, I i noticed i was already different 
at a younger age, before Israel came, where I was debating classes about politics, human rights, even if I didn't know what I was talking about, right? I, I driven, and then I see myself in university, um, university, and an interviewer came to to Elel back then. It's like saying, "How come you're fighting?" And people say, "Because we have to. We feel suffering. We feel the oppression." I said, "I because I like it. It's kind of fun, right? I enjoyed it." So clearly, that flame and energy gave me a huge advantage uh, to continue doing it without feeling the struggle. But I realized there was an issue um, from business. I've gathered the experience that you can't just do things. You got to solve problems. You got to be goal oriented. And my goal for 20 years through being the, uh, an executive Canadian Jewish Congress, national chair of neighbors, Canada, doing all, doing the, the, the circle, right. I discovered that just nobody is solving my problem of how to advocate. So it was all goal oriented. I, and look, I was already passionate in behavior psychology and behavior economics and i learned marketing and you and business and i'm like nobody's actually bringing science into how to advocate for israel people are just advocating and that's it so so i grown frustrated with all my beautiful jewish community organizations that i was deeply involved and i came to a realization five six years ago that i need to research the science of persuasion. Even more important than understanding the science uh, to understand the uh, modern Israel history that everybody should learn. Just as much as we learn Torah and we learn Holocaust, we should be learning modern Israel history. And 99% of people that I know that graduate Jewish school do not know. We also need to understand the science of persuasion, right? But it was all goal-oriented. It was all this frustration in university that nobody from the... Everybody, like I knew nothing about the structure of the community. Now I know everything, but I didn't know that from Canadian Jewish Congress and from Breath and all the fancy organization, why I was the loudmouth. Why nobody came to me and said, Sharon, this is how you do it. I had to discover everything by myself. And that was a major, major issue. And to and and now that I know so much about the science of persuasion, what I've discovered, I mean, there's a book called Everybody Lies. Um, a great book. And in one of the chapters, they're discussing how so many, so many people make a decision, but whether they're going to be Republican or Democrats at age 18, this is a crucial number. This is a crucial number that, that, that just, and just not because anybody influenced them because they see that the president is great or the president is not good, and they immediately tilt in one direction or another. And I was like, that's probably, I don't have the science yet for that, but that's probably the statistic for being anti-Israel, pro-Israel. At age 18, somebody came to you, hit you with a hammer, be anti-Israel, anti and something for the rest of your life, you're anti-Israel. And this doesn't happen in Concordia anymore. It happens in Harvard, where our next uh, president So. I realized that really people are not fixing this issue and not paying attention to it. So that's what drove me this uh, all those years. So how did you get started? I mean, there's you know famous book Influence by uh, Robert Caldini. I mean, there's all kinds of you know literature on the science of persuasion and, and so forth. What did you do to get like you just dove into the library? I read them all. I read them all. I 
Don, predictably irrational was one of my biggest wake-up calls that people are just not ira- not rational. This is why um, we have this this um, anti-Israel propaganda till today with with a dedicated um, refugee agency for the Palestinians. We double the but with uh, sorry, we double the resources, uh, uh, four times per capita the the money and. Then the rest of the world combined. That's why th- there's so much, so much craziness. It's in th- in this in this conflict, right? But but the understanding that people are actually legitimately rational and are very prone to very prone to just persuasion and influence made me realize people are not just bad. They're not bad. That they 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 think that they're doing the right thing. That they care and. Somebody got to them faster than us, but, but it's not so hard. We don't go there, right? We so somebody got some some your caring person. Please take care of the Palestinians. And uh, nobody reads about right now in the world. There's about thirty two conflicts, thirty two conflicts and wars happening at the same time. But nobody comes and tells the caring average Joe that this is happening, right? And and the pro the anti Israel machine. Is doing it amazingly, brilliantly, with and they're using all the science, right? If we if we want to if we want learn how to do it right, we don't need to go anywhere else. We just need to look at our opponents. They are brilliant, right? Well, how did they learn all this? I mean, did they sat down in the library and read all these books, or they, they just got lucky because the story is one of a perceived underdog and it's very you know tugs at the heartstrings and so forth. No, 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 no. This is much more calculated than that. So the words through the grave veins, and I still cannot cannot have I, I'm very cautious not to spread propaganda. And so I don't have enough of the facts to prove that it's real. But the word through grave veins that the KGB came and the KGB knows the entire science. They they invented the science, right? Before a bunch of Jews wrote about behavior economics and behavior psychology, KGB implemented it. 67 years ago and that was they probably came. also a lot of it's probably also a lot of jews there doing that, that <laughs> probably <laughs> I, I i wouldn't be surprised that half of the israeli behavior economists that uh, that i wouldn't be surprised that their grandparents and parents are probably some kgb uh were ex-kgbs that uh persuaded and influenced their kids to go into the science of persuasion right um but uh, uh, kgb was the first behavior psychology behavior co- economist specialist and they were in a glo- uh, uh, in a cold war with the united states and the palestinians or back then the arabs that live in palestine were their one of their biggest pawns so this is i think I don't have the facts, and I, I always very careful. I'm trying to look from the facts, although I do have a friend. She claims she does have. There's one Romanian author that claims that Yasser Arafat was um, was um, a pawn of KGB. He has a lot, a little bias towards him, so I'm always very, very careful stating the fact. But there's no question about it that the Palestinians have doubled the KGB and learned some some really, really good techniques. Now. There's also the realities that dictators in general are shameless, brilliant behavior psychologists, even without knowing that. The concept of just continuously with confidence repeating things, 
right? Is uh, uh, repeating things with confidence is is make and act like nothing else happens. That by itself persuades the people so well. I mean, there there the is there's a science term to it. It's called mere exposure effect, and the the mere exposure effect is actually what the music industry has been using to influence people to listen to their music. So in the 70s, I'm very passionate about music also. So uh, the in the 70s, um, a, a record label would go and say, listen, we're going to book 100 bands, we're going to put it on the radio, and the people kind of almost democratically pick which one they like or not, and the radio will keep on playing it, and that's how they win. In the 90s, when they start creating those boys bands, that was not an option anymore. It was too expensive. So what they actually did is make sure that before it goes on the radio, they play it in the elevator, they play it in the shopping mall, they play it in the streets, they play it anywhere. And even if your brain subconsciously thought that music was awful in the on the first sound, on the tenth you got used to it. So once he, he, he got it got to the radio, you say, ah, um, this uh, I know this song. This is good. This is the anti-Israel marketing machine plan. Right, you mentioned apartheid, imperialist colonists, occupiers, all the words that became part of our vocabulary, they've been pounding those words for 50 years. And something happened in one of the biggest books that I'm passionate about is The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Like I read through all of them, right? And Tipping Point really teach you how to create an infection of ideas. You keep on pounding. And eventually something would happen, the right influencer, the right connector, the right person, and the movement starts. And that's why in the last 10 years, we moved from 12% to 22% of people in America see Israel in a bad light. And this is, and this has to change, and we can change it. So it, it sounds like a very bleak picture. So how, how can we change it? What are the you know methods for you know battling against such a sophisticated and pernicious and uh, unabashed, shameless, you know, opponent. Listen, um, first of all, one of, one of my biggest obstacles, um, and that's why sometimes I, I used to, when I started giving my presentations, I used to start talking about immediately how to, uh, immediately giving the story, giving the tools, giving them sticky elevator pitches, better than, Better that is what out there, and that's what you'll see on my website also. But I find that I got so much opposition from fellow Zionists, right or left, right? And I realized that people just don't believe. People just give up, right? People just don't believe that it is possible to mass persuade an entire population fairly quickly, while the other side believes that very much, and they're doing it great, right? And and. And it's just the beginning. So, but first of all, I need some believers. <laughs> I, I so I, I so part of the part of my job these days is to explain people the science to understand that we can bring back the twenty-two percent to twelve percent in three years. In three years, if we have a, a sticky strategy, a strategy that every Fellow Zionists, I'm not talking every Jew. Every person that went to a Jewish school is equipped with ability, with with elevated pitch and quick words. Now, one of the the, the again, I the science need to be explained in about half an hour, an hour. It's not quick, but again, going back to the mere exposure effect, which is the uh, persuasion one on one, 
we need to come with our own words. What is this? First of all, we need to stop using their words. Stop using occupation. Stop using apartheid. Stop. Stop. This is, I understand that there's a territory that you might call it occupied territories. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I will make a case that it's not. But stop using it anyways. Why using their language? Or use disputed territories or use Judea and Samaria. Stop. Right. But now we need to come up with our words. Right. And first of all, we need to start using the word indigenous 10 million times until we don't say 10 million times indigenous. Right. We're not going to get a momentum. Right. We're not just outsiders. We are the indigenous people. We have lived there actively for 3,500 years. We didn't just appear. We created the Kabbalah and Sfat in, 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 the, um, the, in the 16th century. The most important rabbis uh, uh, came and lived there in, in the 10th century. We have uh, the, 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 the grand judges have been here in the 9th century. We have been there all this time. We have been the majority until the 4th century. And we try this at least 22 22. Um, active, um, documented uh, attempts and come back. We have not just disappeared and came back. We are by every definition the indigenous people of this region. So, but I don't expect anybody to be able to preach the way I preach. And although this was not the smoothest one, but but just say the word indigenous. The the, the other side, they don't know what they're talking about, but they say imperialist occupiers. This ninety nine percent of the uh, the anti-israel people don't know anything but they know how to say those words so we need to say indigenous we need to say genocidal when we talk on the other side don't don't know about genocidal from the river to the sea palestine will be free is a genocidal chant it's not so repeat it 10 million times repeat i like the anti-israel marketing machine that's my own invention in my website there's 10 words although i i'm open to debate what is the right words? And start saying that. If every Zionist, Jew, or non-Jew, why am I saying Jew? Every person that kind of likes Israel a little bit will start using that language, that by itself will transform it. Then you need a proper elevator pitch for everyone. So that cannot be for everybody, just but at least for the people in, in Jewish schools, teach them. How to explain this in one minute? How to explain our narrative? There is there's a clear way. And once they have the fundamentals, have a tool that answers any question on the spot, which is, by the way, Israel activists, what I'm building and what I built, right? To cater to every attention span, short paragraphs, um, artificial intelligence, scripts. Some people like to read. You make sure that our that our data is distributed as fast as possible to as many people as possible. Zero, give me a give me a thirty second elevator pitch. I'm a, a pro Palestinian activist. You know, we're riding up the we're riding up the elevator in Concordia. I say, oh, Israel is you know this occupying force, and it's you know it's terrible, and you don't care about you know people that are being uh, abused and people that have been you know being oppressed for for decades and you know kicked off their their ancient land. Whatever it is, how do you respond? Well, first of all, you ask a question, but usually the elevator pitch is for a media person. Please tell me, please tell me about it. So first of all, I say a conflict is defined by by two points. 
who started it, and who is preventing fermenting. There's two populations claimed to be indigenous to a region. I don't know exactly the Palestinian story. I don't understand it. I don't want to take it away. But we are clearly another indigenous group. 80% of what was called British Mandate of Palestine was already given to the Arabs, was already given to the Palestinians and named after a local river, Jordan. The, 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 fi the final result was about 20%. We didn't get our, uh, we didn't get Jerusalem. We didn't get Hebron, our two most important city, in terms of the proposal. But there was a proposal to divide it. We said yes. They said we want everything. Let's kill all the Jews. There's nothing matters after this. This is it. And if you want to extend it a little bit, the elevator pitch is like we also we won this genocidal attempt against us. And we attempted four times to give legitimate compromise for peace. And again, the answer was, let's kill all the Jews. So we didn't start it. We are not prevented from ending. That's it. When you get into the technicalities and the details and all that stuff, which, by the way, I give all the answers there, you are jumping to their trap. Because their trap is to take you away from those two facts. That they're not letting this finish, and they started it. And the other argument, the only other argument that you need to argue after you're making the point, is they're trying to make it sound like they were not the indigenous people. And that is part of my training. Another two minutes, once they ask, but you don't really belong here. Yes, we do. The term Palestine was given to, Ju uh, to Judea by the Romans because we're a pain in the tuchus, right? And for the next 2,000 years, we were an active presence in that region, always trying to come back against the colonizers. And finally, we attempted. But 35 years of continuous presence, 1,400 years of being the majority, continuously doing active things from that role, continuous 22 documented attempts to come back. We check every tick of what is considered to be indigenous. We deserved a little piece of land in that region. And they said, let's kill them all. Nothing else matters. That's the quickie. That's the quickie, Harry. I've followed the work at all of Rudy Rockman. He's been on my podcast. He's he's made a big push to the using the to fo focusing on the idea of indigenous people and so forth. Very, very similar. I don't know if you've seen his work at all. Oh, I see his work. Are we first of all, I love him. This is a good, this is a good man. Um, we have different philosophies a little bit. I believe we're both progressive. We're both leaning to the left. We both care very much about the Palestinians. I believe that that you help the Palestinians with tough love. I think that they are the biggest victims of this situation by their own oppressors, right? And we need to work together to get rid of their oppressors. Rudy Roachman is a little different. He's like saying, let's... Um, Let's make one state. Let's. I, it's, I love him. We have a little different, different philosophy about things. I believe that I believe that that progressives, by definition, have never been apologetic in any way. Right, where it comes to to um, women's rights, environment. You see the 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 um, you see that the groups are fighting unconditionally for their rights. And then suddenly, where it comes to fighting for the indigenous uh, people of Levant, 
We're like, oh, maybe you're right. Oh, let's be nice. Let's say no. No. You want to help the Palestinians, which I do very much. Make sure you take away the money from those schools that brainwash them from young age to hate us. Right? That's how you make peace. That's how you take care of the Palestinians. Right? And But that involves a very unapologetic, progressive ideology, which is very, very different than most people, most people that call some progressive Zionists. This is the only pretty much differentiator that between Rudy Roachman, we do preach the same thing. But again, for me, all this amazing, brilliant, the Notish Bees and the Rudy Roachman of the world are preaching things that are not easy to replicate. The experience when I was younger, one of, one of, also one of my triggers was that I would go to a presenter, somebody as brilliant as Rudy Roachman. I think that guy is so brilliant. I love him, right? We different philosophy doesn't mean um, anything. But you, you go to listen to a presenter. You say, "Wow, you're so right," and you get out of the room and you can't replicate. Like I love Noah I think she's amazing. Right. If not for my amazing wife, I would go to, try to get married to notice. I'm kidding. Bad joke. But uh, I hope my wife doesn't hear it nonsense like this. But the the but it's a book. The biggest problem with notice strategy is she wrote a book. Who reads this book? Who has time to read books? Right. Some fellow Zionists is uh, uh, preaching to the choir. But the key. It's not for me to be an expert. I, in my movement, I want to be in the background. I don't want to be the face. I will end up being the face because I, because I guess in social media world, you don't, you can't avoid that. But I want every single Jew to be equipped with the knowledge. And that's how you create mass movements. That's how you reach a tipping point, right? You, you don't reach a tipping point by being expert and preaching to people. You've got to make sure that every presentation, there's a takeaway. And that's why I tour. That's why I'm touring in North America, making sure that the people that listen to me have a takeaway. And if not, they can immediately go to my website and easy, easy search, and they get every answer instantaneously. What's the relationship the to... What's your relationship to some of the other organizations that you mentioned earlier? I mean, you mentioned Hasbara, which I, I know quite well. Um, you didn't mention, but I'll, I'll mention it, Stand With Us, which is obviously a, a, the major, probably the most major player in terms of campus uh, training and, and those kinds of things. You know, these are organizations that have been certainly trying for many years to do something in this space and holding seminars and trips and, you know, student leadership and all of that. Uh, I'm sure they've made some impact. Uh, you know, what's kind of your relationship there? So I don't have a relationship with them. Um, I I want to. It's one step at a time. Look, again, you're asking me to to criticize fellow activists that that I love and I appreciate so much of their effort and everything. I think the strategy is weak. So you go to stand with us, right? You go to the website. I'm a person. I, I don't want to go to an event. I don't want to be a leader. I'm an engineering student. And I just want to be able to answer that schmuck that uh, call, call, called me an occupier. Could I get an answer? Right. So you go to stand with us and you see, and, and you see the, oh, we raised this amount of money and we talked to these people. Just answer my question. Right. The, so 
So, and big presentation. We take you to leadership. It's like, no. Talk to the simple, simple Zionists. It doesn't have time. The amount of people throughout the years that I talked to is like, Sharon, I remember you being an activist in Concordia. And I would have loved to help you, but I had no idea how to do it. Because there was always this few guys that went to Asbara Fellowship, which I had no idea existed, by the way. I was the loudest guy, and I didn't really understand what is this a magical thing that takes you to Israel and brings you back. They give you a lecture for three weeks. Who has the energy for this? We need to cater to short attention span. We need to cater to, to the Twitter X of the world, right? And... Nobody does it. Nobody gives you instant answers. Nobody gives you fundamentals. And I I feel that our that the Asbar Fellowship and our Stanvidas have not succeeded in giving easily accessible information on the spot. The, go to the website. I mean, I always give one of my favorite activists is Elel Neuer, the 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 UN watch guy. Right, I'm a big fan of his, and I'm a big fan of impounding uh, on the uh, on the UN door on a continuous basis. And look, I do research. I use all those websites, Memory, UN Watch, everything for my website to to get the information. And it and it as an activist, I wanted to say UN UNRWA is a disaster, in my opinion. UNRWA is the reason why we don't peace. By the way, this is this an entire podcast uh, another day, but the. It's like, okay, Ilel, tell me, how do I explain to people why UN is, is a poopoo organization? I'm trying to keep it PG-13, right, sometimes. Uh, and, and it took me 15 minutes to find something. Instead of just give me the lines, why UN is awful to the Jews, right? So on my website, now you type in why the UN is ineffective and why the UN. And, and you, you, you type in UN, it pops up the question, and you get an answer. In a second, this is what we're missing for mass distribution information. The only way we can create a revolution, a pro-Israel revolution, is by creating tools and ideas that distribute like a virus. Maybe I shouldn't be using that language in after COVID, but 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 it is an epidemic of of um, of ideas. So I don't see. My fellow activist organizations do that. Look, I was in Canadian Jewish Congress. I was the national chair of Outreach of Neighbors Canada. I have been sitting around the table and shouting and complaining for 10 years because I wanted to be part of an organization and I just gave up and I had to start my own. So, Sharon, since we're running out of time, um, give, give us a, a 30 second overview of what Israel Activist is doing, how you're integrating AI, you know, what is it and what can a person do if they want to learn more? Okay, I need a minute because, first of all, Israel Activist is the best resource for any person who wants to learn how to advocate for Israel. You don't need to be an activist. Just even a regular conversation in a supermarket, we give you the fundamentals, which is an hour read, not a semester, not a year, an hour read. And then after that, once you equip, the moment that you that you have those conversation, we give you instant answers. Of course, with more fundings, we're going to be integrating AI conversations and we're going to be integrating voice recognition. Literally, the app is going to use is Israel an apartheid state. You can turn the phone and the phone will have a conversation with your opponent if you're too shy to have a conversation. 
I myself, I am trying to start a revolution. And if you read the book, Tipping Point, you understand the revolution and epidemic of ideas start with mavens, they start with connectors, and start with salespeople. And of course, they don't mention, but also with fundraisers and funders. Please, if you're one of those people, I'm, I'm building a team, they will change. Not just going to make a little dent, they're going to change the perspective of an entire nation. And I need those people on my team. So hit me up, info at israelactivist.com. I really want to have you and I need the help because it's a team, it's a team game. It's not just me. I'm not, I'm trying my hard not to be the face of everything that is happening. Harun Kaufman, I could go on with you about so many topics all day long, really. Um, fascinating, fascinating. Uh, unfortunately, I have to jump off. <laughs> but, uh, I wish I had all day. I don't. Um, but really, just unbelievable. Israelactivist.com. We're going to link to it in the show notes, as well as all of uh, your other uh, your other content, your other uh, resources, and other aspects about your career and your life, because it's so interesting on all, all different fronts. And I, I think you know the idea of bringing science to bear on the art of persuasion and the notion of, you know, standing up proudly and confidently for a just and profoundly critical cause. Uh, I find it very, very uh, compelling and very energizing. And uh, I believe that many, many other young people will as well, if, if they're armed with the right information, the right tools and the right uh, mindset as well, perhaps most importantly. So Sharon Kaufman, thank you so, so much. For joining us. Thank you, Ari. It was it was really fun and a real pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know